Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening, and welcome to this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. We are online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and check out our YouTube channel. So hi, my name is Sarah Toulouse, and I'm the executive director of the Bayer USA Foundation, as well as the head of corporate social responsibility for Bayer in the United States. Bayer is thrilled to sponsor this program, and we thank all of you for sharing your time with us and engaging on this ever-important topic of science literacy as well as STEM education. And with that, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Jemison to all of you. Uh, She grew up in the south side of Chicago during the civil rights movement. Um, She went to Stanford at the age of 16. I know. So we'll keep going. She's a chemical engineer, a physician, an educator, an author, a philanthropist. And then in 1992, she blasted into space aboard the space shuttle Endeavor, locking her place in history as the first African-American female astronaut. Yes. Dr. Jemison is a member of the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Medicine, as well as an inductee of the National Women's Hall of Fame and the National Medical Association Hall of Fame. Today, she leads a bold, inclusive endeavor called 100-Year Starship, which has a mission of ensuring the capability for space travel beyond our solar system to another star within 100 years. And so if that's not impressive enough, (laughs) she has appeared on Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Dr. Jemison works tirelessly to advance science literacy and knows firsthand that access, opportunity, and exposure are critical elements for student success in STEM. For 21 years, she has served as Bayer's chief ambassador for our Making Science Make Sense initiative, which provides STEM education opportunities for students, for teachers, and for families across the country. In addition to hearing from Dr. Jemison this evening, we're delighted that Kimberly Bryant will be joining us to moderate tonight's conversation. Ms. Bryant, yeah. Ms. Bryant is an electrical engineer and founder of Black Girls Code, which is a nonprofit organization right here in the Bay Area that is dedicated to seeding the tech pipeline by equipping girls from underrepresented communities with coding skills. Thank you, Dr. Jemison. Thank you, Ms. Bryant, for being here. Thank you all for coming this evening. We hope you enjoy this evening's program in downtown San Francisco. Well, I, I want to start out by saying that um, 
I speak a lot, but I, I'm a little bit nervous <laughs> today. I'm, I'm not speaking, but when you sit on the stage with one of your idols and one of your role models, it's a little bit difficult. <laughs> um, so I would like for you to bear with me. Um, definitely honored to be on the stage with Dr. Jemison today. Thank you very much, and I'm really excited to be here with you as well because we've shared the stage before, yeah. and uh, you've done so much, and thank you continue you. to do so much, so it's my pleasure thank as you. well. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I want to jump in, and I, I will tell everyone that I, I had questions that Melon and the team um, started for me, and then I, I switched up the questions, and then when I got here in true um, your idol um, fashion, Dr. Jemison had to mark up my questions again. So <laughs> I had a place in mind that I wanted to go, but she, she quickly schooled me on where we would be going tonight. <laughs> and that's cool. but. <laughs> Uh, so I'm on a road with that, and it just will be like we're having a conversation just like we were having in the back. Absolutely. Okay. See, that's what happens when you get in first. Yes. And you can see other people's <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So I would like to start still with this, this first question that I had because it really, um, I wanted to, to tap into this because I felt such a connection with Dr. Jemison and your upbringing, uh, first in Alabama, because I am from the South as well, and then going into Chicago and seeing how, I wanted to really get at how did those experiences in your early youth kind of shape the woman that you would become in the, in the now, in the present, as an innovator and as a scientist and as an engineer? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's very true is that every experience you have leads into what you do next and how you view the world. So I was born in Decatur, Alabama, but we left Decatur when I was three years old and we moved to Chicago. And I do remember a lot about, you know, I was one of those kids I can remember back to when I was three and probably two and a half years old. But in, in seeing going to school, with my, with my mother when she was walking my brother and sister to school. I remember those things. I remember lots of things about like neighbors down the street and things like that. And it was a really good childhood memory. But going to Chicago, there was the other piece of that that I remember was just going to public schools in Chicago. It was mentioned that I grew up during the, um, you know, during the, the civil rights movement, but it was really, you know, all during the 60s and all the things that happened during that time. When people think of the 60s, they always talk about anarchy and things like that. But I remember the 60s as this really creative time. I wasn't quite old enough to be a hippie. I, you know, always resented that. Um, <laughs> but I always thought of it as this time where so many people were pushing to be a part of things. They were asserting their right to participate. Whether you talk about decolonialization that was happening around the world, you talk about the women's uh, movement, you talk about the civil rights movement, you talk about space exploration. There was this incredible creativity. And I remember being enlivened by that mm -hmm. and, and thinking that I could participate and do just about anything. And that was very important. Um, I went to Chicago Public Schools. What was important about going to Chicago public schools is that at that time, you also had these incredible teachers because a lot of times women back then, they only could be teachers or nurses. They had a very truncated set of, of jobs that they can do. And I remember having some incredible teachers. And 
the 60s also were a time where they were experimenting with different kinds of educational practices. And so I got to be the beneficiary of that in some ways because there were always new things that were going on and my teachers were like, okay, why don't you try this and, mm -hmm. and that. And it was really, um, for me, it was a time that allowed me to think that I could do whatever I wanted to do. Now, I would also say that that's a little bit different because so many times, um, the roles that people saw women in were very truncated, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was a little kid growing up in, in kindergarten, you know, your teacher always asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a scientist. And she said, don't you mean a nurse? And there's nothing wrong with being a nurse, but she was trying to steer me into what she considered a safe career. And luckily enough, I was, you know, sort of, uh, I was a little spunky and I said, like, no, I mean a scientist. Right? <laughs> but I wanted to try other things. And I, yeah. I think it was a very interesting time and um, was very meaningful. So how did you land on chemical engineering? What really kind of led you to this path of becoming a creator and an innovator? Is there anything that you can, can say that really spurred that interest in you as a, as a child? I think we all like to create things. Mm -hmm. I think we all like to see what we can do. And my, I don't know where it came from, but my entire time I always wanted to do things and create stuff and have this impact. Now I was a third uh, child, right? And, um, and so from what I can remember, I remember my brother and sister, they had science projects and I always wanted to work on their science projects with them, mm -hmm. you know, and I was always there like, okay, I want to do this. I couldn't wait to get to school so I could get science projects too. But, you know, you don't always come out one way. Um, Growing up, I, I wanted to be a fashion designer. My mother used to sew clothes all the time. And so I would sew Barbie doll clothes, like with the scraps. And so I learned how to make clothes. And then we would always, you know, I I'd, I'd learned how to sew. I learned how to cook, both for my mother and my father. My father's was like a man's man. And I always say that because I think hanging out with my father was really important. He used to plait my hair and all those kinds of things. And I used to uh, play cards with my father and his friends. And at six and seven years old, I counted cards and talked trash playing billiards. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it helps you with a little bit with your confidence Absolutely. and stuff like that. Absolutely. You know, you have these, 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 these men who think it's really cool that there's this little girl who counts cards with them, right? Yeah. And, and, and so those things make a difference. But the creativity, I think, comes in part of us. I wanted to be a professional dancer. I loved choreography. I did lots of studio art. And I always had science projects. And I always wanted to build and try new things. I mean, part of what helps with that is your parents. I mean, they put up with the nonsense. You know, I mean, I think sometimes but I might have locked me in a closet. Uh, <laughs> you know, but you know, this, it's the ability to put up with being a busybody and having that, that range of experience that we all have. You're right. So I think one of the things that was interesting when they were doing your bio is when uh, they said you went to Stanford at 16 and everybody's like, whoa, you know, like what was that experience like for you as a young woman of color uh, starting on this path, uh, not just any engineering school, at Stanford as a 16-year-old. And how did you, especially for the students in the audience, how did you navigate that path as, as a young woman of color in this very male-dominated environment? So, um, 
when I went to Stanford, I'll just let me let me just do the backstory. The backstory is that in high school, I was student council president. And I was I was tall, so I wasn't small, you know, and so I wasn't you know, I was used to running stuff when I, mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and and I had been, uh, you know, all through high school, I had been, you know, I started, I skipped seventh grade. And so I had always been there. And, and so I felt very comfortable. I went to an integrated high school in Chicago. I had taken advanced placement physics. I did very well um, on, you know, SATs and standardized tests. I felt very comfortable with myself. And so when I went to college, I thought, yeah, of course, I'm good, right? Mm-hmm. And I was not, I had had, Um, teachers, I'd had white male teachers, you know, African-American male teachers. I had a range of teachers I'd take on Russian in high school. So I felt really comfortable with myself. And I was actually a little surprised that I ended up again with some professors who were not as comfortable with me in their classrooms. And I always say the good thing was is that I went when I was 16 and so I still had that level of rebelliousness where I wasn't well socialized, right? Because I didn't really worry so much what they thought of me. Now, you always care, right? You do care because teenagers care. You really do care what people think about you. But I was like, well, I'm going to do this anyway. And I think that that was made a difference. And, and, and then I had the students in the class, um, who were in the dorm with me. I, I chose to be in a four-class four dorm. Mm-hmm. And Stanford had co-ed dorms at the time. This is no big deal now, but when I went to school, it was a big deal that dorms were co-ed on the same floor. And, um, and so a lot of them were like, don't pay attention to that teacher, that teacher. So you could get that support. And I kept or this professor or the other professor. And so I was able to get that support and move along. So when I think about what it was like, I didn't dwell on it. it sometimes it hurt my feelings a little bit, but uh, you know, you move on. I had something else that made a difference. I had a scholarship uh, from Bell Laboratories that was sort of supported by Bell Laboratories. Bell Laboratories was um, basically the place at the time that came out with all the kinds of technology and engineering that powered AT&T and the phone companies and things like that. Bell Labs, they did incredible kinds of research. And so every summer uh, while I was in college, I had a job at Bell Labs facilities, which allowed me to um, do things from learn how to program. I learned how, I learned how to program when I was in high school. Fortran. Fortran. Fortran yeah. on punch Fortran. cards. Fortran, Fortran, Fortran on punch cards. <laughs> I know the youngsters are like, what is that? <laughs> but, but I also, and so I like learned PL1 and yeah. COBOL and I was yeah. doing all these things and I worked, got to work on like incredible equipment and mm-hmm. things at Bell Labs. So whenever I come back to school, that was always a fun foundational piece, right? that you knew you could do all these things and you had folks who believed in you. And I think that whole ability of being able to do internships, to be able to um, um, be out in the work world and have people who believe in you, that that's really important. You see that over and over again. And you see it uh, mirrored in studies that we look at now about what helps kids to succeed. So that was important. And I did a lot of... Um, 
political science. So I majored in chemical engineering. How did you ask me before how I got to chemical engineering? Mm -hmm. Cause I wanted to do something called biomedical engineering. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows what biomedical engineering is now. And mm -hmm. not so much back then. Mm -hmm. And, and so I ended up being steered to this chemical engineering professor, uh, Channing Roberts, who was doing work around biomedical engineering. And he told me by the time he would approve an interdisciplinary degree, that I would be one or two courses shy of being a chemi. So I said, okay. And he said, you should be a chemical engineer because people know what you do. Mm -hmm. So I did. So I, I ended up majoring in chemical engineering. But I also ended up majoring in African and African American studies. Why that? Well, what I found is I was a busybody. Mm -hmm. And I started taking these classes. I got to take Swahili at Stanford at the linguistics department. When do you get to take Swahili, right? I so I started taking Swahili and I kept taking it. And then I took, there was um, a very famous uh, professor, uh, an African historian named uh, Sinclair Drake. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually took classes, uh, poli sci and classes on um, politics in, 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 in Southern Africa and West Africa. So I took all these classes because they were for interest. And by the time I finished, my junior year rolled around, I realized that I could complete the major if I just did the two, um, what do you call it, uh, required courses. I did a lot of cultural. I danced all the way through school. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I did a lot of that, you know, on reflection because those professors were very comfortable with me in their classrooms. And so you almost got that, um, I'm not gonna say approval, but that warm, fuzzy feeling that I might not have gotten in other places. And so I may have done it very unconsciously, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the, the whole going there at 16, I never even thought of myself as being 16. I had, until sometimes, um, <laughs> I was, I got this, I got a ticket, a traffic ticket, and because I was less than 18, I had to bring somebody with me to traffic court. And so I had to tell the people in my dorm, because I had to get somebody to go with me, so they got a big laugh out of that. So. <laughs> well, I, I really want to talk a little bit now, I want to, talk about what you feel for young people, since there's a lot of young people in the audience, why, as, as well as parents, why it's important for us to focus on this science literacy for young people today in terms of how they can use that as a platform to shape the future. So I'm gonna say that it's not just about young people with science literacy. Everybody okay. needs to be science literate. So I'm just gonna, let me just get that out there. All right. And, and, and I use the term science literacy. So I have been working. Um, and why not STEM? Why, why, why not that? I got to ask that before you say, why can't, why not you say, say STEM? Because that's what everybody's saying now. STEM, 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 STEM. So why not STEM? Because I'm old school. We were working on science literacy before STEM was coined. Sure. I was like, I'm just going to tell you what's up. Yeah. So I've been, um, I, as, as Sarah said, I've been working with Bayer uh, for over 20 years on making science make sense in science literacy programs. When I first left NASA, one of the, the immediate things I did was to start an international science camp called The Earth We Share. And it was about science curriculums and building critical thinking and problem solving skills. 
I think everyone needs to be science literate to think their way through the day, to tackle the kinds of uh, situations that we see, right? Science literacy is about being able to understand what's going on in the world around you, to be able to read an article in the newspaper about the environment, about toxins, about health, be able to figure out how to vote on it, and it's about being able to see evidence. I always think about science literacy as these things that you need to be to be a contributing member of society, no matter what field you decide to go on, go into. You know, when you say someone is science literate, it doesn't mean that they're solving the equations E equals MC squared and stuff. You don't have to be a professional scientist or technologist to be science literate, just like you don't have to be able to, you know, write like Nikki Giovanni to be reading and writing literate, right? And it, but you do expect people to be literate. And that's the reason I use the term science literacy. The reason I'm not using the term STEM and I do use it from time to time. So STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, it's a great term, um, but I, I've just chosen to use the term literacy. So we could say STEM literacy. Mm -hmm. If we wanted to, it's easier for me. I've been rolling that off. Um, but why is it important? It's important because it's really cutting a wide swath in our world today. When you look around, we, we expect you know, science, engineering, and mathematics, those fields to be able to solve our problems, right? And we say that's gonna, gonna happen. But the reality is that when you look at um, what goes on in science, people have to choose what they're gonna research, right? They have to choose what problem they're gonna tackle. You even, some of your interpretation and how you see data sets is even influenced by who you are. So that's the reason it's important that we have more people involved and we have people who are science literate. So even if you're not the one who's doing the research or doing the technology development, if you're funding it, you get to choose some things. And so it really makes a difference to understand that, what we're working on. People write laws and regulations. Right? Or don't write laws and regulations, or want to reverse laws and regulations based on how they see the thing. Right? And so that's the reason why it's really important when I, we push on science literacy. Now, there's also the idea of the pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. Of being able to go in and get different kinds of jobs. But if you, if you build science literacy, you're going to get that pipeline field, right? That's going into the different jobs and different sectors. Um, there's this, this there's this piece of awareness that you have to get, mm -hmm. and you really need to start early, um, and we have an opportunity to do a lot of things with that. So one of the questions on, around that note from the audience is about starting early, and so this is from one of our teachers in the audience, and she asks, "What is the one thing you would impart on current middle and high school STEM students to keep them engaged?" Why do people always ask what we're going to impart to the students to keep them engaged? <laughs> you know, and I was going to sit there and try to figure out an answer. Let me just, I'm going to be a little bit blunt today. <laughs> but the reason why I bring that up is because it's really, you know, I can't sit here and say one thing. What keeps students and what keeps people engaged is doing stuff that's engaging. 
true. That's true. And 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 we have this incredible opportunity because folks like to explore the world around them. Right? We we want to do hands-on experiment things. We want to try things. So let me tell you about what we did with the Earth We Share. I told you the first thing I did when I came out of NASA was to start this science camp. It was called the Earth We Share. And it was about building critical thinking and problem-solving skills. It was for 12 to 16 years old. Because there that's where the age where they start sort of slipping mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And what did we do? We uh, had them work in teams and task them to answer problems like, predict the hot public stocks through the year 2030, this back in 1994. Design the world's perfect house. How many people can the earth hold, right? Create a global budget for, um, for uh, science and technology research, right? And what they did, and they came from all around the world and they worked in teams, and that's all we gave them was the problem. Design the world's perfect house. But we taught them to think about the problem. And we didn't mean you'd get to come up with any kind of old nonsense. You had to think about, here are the questions. First of all, ask, what does this question mean? And because you're working in a team, you have to ask what this question means. And as you're starting to work through, you know, you have to ask questions without trying to solve them first. Like, what does this actually mean? And so we taught them through, you know, work with them through asking those questions, but they really worked with themselves. We gave them a methodology to think through it. And then they had to come up with possible solutions. They had to weigh the solutions, vote on them, figure out, and then they had to go test those solutions. So coming up with the design of the perfect house, over three years we had team, oh, here's the thing. They had to present their solutions in front of the whole camp. Around God and everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So, so all of a sudden you get to use all this energy and peer pressure to do good things because nobody wants to be up there with their, you know, with their team looking crazy, <laughs> right? And so there's all this energy that's used, um, and it, and it gets an opportunity to focus and engage because this really is their solution. And we worked in with teachers. Um, and they, and they acted as guides because there was no single answer. So for example, what kind of solutions that they come up with, these different groups over the summer at different times, because each group worked on a different question. And some of the answers were, um, the perfect house would be a house that could be built in any country in the world and that it would be affordable by most people, and they found out it was, they made it free prefab and a number of other things, designed the materials and things like that, right? Another group said that, um, at a different time said that it should have zero impact on the environment. That would be the perfect house. And so they made things that way. Another said, you know what, well, we're just gonna go for luxury, right? <laughs> so, you know, but you could sort of see that, and they came up with all the things that did and build the design, but that's because they were engaged and it was very interesting because when they started off, they weren't really sure what this was gonna be, but at the end, they were like, I came back, because I would go away for, I'd be there at the beginning, and then they work with the teachers and the folks there, and I come back at the end, and I was like, uh, Dr. Jones, can we dress up for our presentations, right? And then they had to come up with this way of right, coming up with the answers. So when I say do things that engage them, it means that we have to understand what age group you're working with, right? 
12 to 16 year olds want to declare their independence. They want to push the envelope. They want to get right up to the edge of the cliff, but they don't want to fall over. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so you want to get them engaged that way. It's by letting them do things hands on that makes a difference. That means that we as teachers, as adults, have to be confident enough in our in our and of ourselves to be guides and not figure that we have to have the one right answer. Right. It means that we have to be confident enough. Let me tell you the reason why I put together the program like that, because I really wanted to train teachers. Right. And you train teachers differently than you train students. So I got to train the teachers. So, um, you know, we, we give them really hard problems and then we'd let them fall. I let them fall down cliffs, roll down valleys, all kinds of things. <laughs> because sometimes, you know, as adults, it takes we are hard to learn. Right. We have to actually spend some time and get our world shaken a little bit in order to figure out how to do things differently. But we have to work with each age group as appropriate in our developmental stages. So I would say figure out what's engaging, but it's always going to be hands-on. It's always going to be something where people are coming out with their own creativity. Now, let me just do one thing Mm -hmm. about creativity and all of that. Sometimes you have to just do rote memorization, too. So I remember when I went to medical school, remember I was in engineering? Mm -hmm. And, you know, engineers, you try to think through a problem. Mm -hmm. Right, you do open book tests, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So when I went to medical school, I was an engineer, and uh, we were doing working on the cadaver, and uh, you know you're learning all this gross anatomy. And my cadaver mates, and they were looking at you know variants of tiny nerves and blood vessels that were coming off. And here's a you know there are three or four different variants about how it comes out in about two to three weeks. And I'm like, oh my god, they're like really boring. They're boring <laughs> me to death. I'm trying to think through the body, right? And um, and I asked the the I asked the anatomy professor. I was like, you know, he's coming around looking at the dissection. I was like you really don't expect us to know all these things by heart, do you? (laughs) He looked at me like, how does she get in? (laughs) And he said, yes. And so luckily enough, it was early enough in the semester, and I went off and I realized, you know, I started learning it by rote. And then I realized... You actually want your doctor to know this stuff cold, right? <laughs> you don't want them going into ER and then looking stuff up while you're there bleeding. <laughs> so, so it's like, right? So those are things like, so there are these things where you do have to memorize and learn pieces. So there are both ways. I, okay. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> So they didn't tell me what things that I couldn't talk about. And so so, let me get it out first. Um, So now after we get all of the young people and all the older people to science literate, and we find ourselves in late January 2017, how do we exist in what I like to think is now an alternate universe? Where, (laughs) don't send my name anywhere because I don't want no calls or emails to go anywhere in D.C. after January. But anyway, (laughs) 
how do we how do we take this science literate generation that we're building and, and give them the skills that they need to kind of be able to create this change and innovation with these skills that we're 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 encouraging them to have when we're we're going into a period um, going from one administration that really advocated for science and one that it seems to be is not going to be as much of a proponent or a supporter of science or technology as, as we have kind of enjoyed over the past eight years. So how, how are we going to make it? How, I know we're going to make it, but how are we going to make it as scientists and innovators uh, in this new reality. <laughs> Leave it at that. I, I had so many things that came to mind, and I, I realized <laughs> I can't say them because there are cameras all around yeah, but and things like that. So, but you know, cut the cameras off. No, it's, it's, <laughs> no. Somebody had their cell phone up. Next thing you're on YouTube, put the cell phone down. I see. You I so, um, but you know, here's the thing. What you know, whatever happens, I always say. You know, Mother Nature really doesn't care. One of the things that we keep forgetting when we're looking at all of this is we come up with posing questions in crazy ways. So we say, it's the environment against the economy. No, it's just the environment, mm. right? Because biologically, there are certain things that we need and we can't do without. And so we have to say the economy is a mechanism in which we use to transfer goods and services and things like that. So we can do that in different ways. And so the reason why I'm answering this, this question like that is because we, um, there's, if, if we're building this incredible uh, science literacy, critical thinking skills and things like that, we just use them. You don't, you know, the world continues on. And the wonderful part about what happens with science literacy and critical thinking is you look for evidence. What is it that we need to do and you keep doing it? We have a wonderful opportunity as well. The, the federal government can do things, right? The big issue is whether or not we look at funding. We present evidence of funding, whether funding in education, funding around alternative energy, funding around what do we do with basic research. And perhaps, you know, as we're building all of this, we remember that local populations have a right to make things happen, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In education, so many times we want to give up our capacity to make things happen. We want to turn it over to someone else. And we'll say, well, I don't know, I can't do nothing now because it's done now. No, you still can do things. You still have a responsibility, right? And I would, I would posit that if we had more science literacy, let's read it, critical thinking skills and evidence-based learning, we wouldn't be in this position. Yeah. <laughs> but but let me let me do one other thing. Right now, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say that there's um, Part of the things happen when people don't know and don't see things. So there's responsibility for us getting information out. When you look at it, so much of what built businesses build on these days is the result of basic research that was done 30, 40, 50 years ago. And if people knew that, then there'd be a willingness to actually put the funding in. So many folks right now think that these great ideas, they just fell out the blue. Mm -hmm. Right? But they didn't. Uh, lasers. 
Lasers are cool, right? You're like, oh, they're okay. <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere, right? Lasers everywhere. I, I got one in my, you know, pointer in my pocket. But that's not the case 40, 50 years ago. When I was a little girl, it was like, ooh, lasers? That's like so cool, right? Didn't know what the hell we were going to do with them. But now they're in Blu-ray players. They do skin resurfacing for cosmetic surgery. We cut with them. We send information by them, all kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. But it's because of the research that was done so many years ago that we're able to do that. Then we start to look at DNA research. I mean, DNA research, 1940s, 1950s, we're elucidating the structure, RNA and ribosomes and all of these kind of things. We look at protein synthesis, you know, in the 50s, 60s, maybe early 70s. But that's what's needed when we look at personalized medicine, when we look at the genetics of cancer, when we look at all of those kinds of things. It's based on research that was done so long ago. So corporations and companies that are using this really should be, be behind basic science research, right? But I think sometimes we don't put that stuff out publicly. It's like, so here's where it happens with the media. They tell a golly gee wow uh, Mr. Wizard story about something, and it's just like, oh, that's really cool, and it just happened. No, it didn't just happen. There were years of research. There are so many things behind it. Or the, med the uh, anchor person will pass it off and say, wow, that's just all, you know, that's really cool, but I couldn't understand it. And so it's all passed off. And so we have an individual responsibility to do a better job with this. Um, you know, the world is what it is, but we still get to control and do so many things. And that's our responsibility. Oh. Got it. That's it. It has been said. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna this is the Commonwealth Club of California program and we're talking to physician and astronaut and I add innovator. Um, Dr. Mae Jemison about her work as a science literacy advocate, particularly devoted to getting more girls, young women, and people of color into careers in STEM. And I'm Kimberly Bryant, electrical engineer and founder of Black Girls Code, your moderator. And you can listen to the Commonwealth Club programs on the radio or podcast. Watch our YouTube channel. Check out our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I think there are the codes right there. But radio audience, you can't see that. <laughs> but I think that's it. I want to do that before we jump into the next half. And I really wanted to talk about what everyone is here to, all these questions are really about being in space. Um, so let's jump right into that and tell us about, uh, one of the young people said, what's the hardest part about coming back from space? And then another young person says, would you go back to space? And, what, and the next young person says, was it everything you imagined it would be? Yeah. <laughs> Which, which one do you want me to do? Whatever. Go where you want to go with it. Um, so the thing that I'm, I'm struck by when we talk about what was space, was space like? Yeah. How, was it everything you imagined it to be? So here's the thing. When you go into, you know, the imagination can go lots of different places. When I was a little girl growing up, I would have assumed I would go into space. 
right? Not that I wanted to be an astronaut. I assumed I'd go into space because we were making so many strides at that time. I assumed I would be on Mars. Like, I was really kind of irritated when I was on Mars. <laughs> when I the That's okay. But I assumed we'd be on Mars. And so, you know, I could have imagined all kinds of things, right? While, when you're an astronaut, you do a lot of training. And because there are people who have been in space before me, you know a lot about what may happen. And so it was very thrilling. Let me tell you the difference. So when you first go up and you're in weightlessness, it doesn't feel really good, right? Because it feels like you've been standing there on your head for a couple of hours because all the blood, the, the fluid, let's say the fluid redistributes itself in your body. Right, because wherever you may have a column of fluid that sort of hangs around in your lower body more, because you're weightless, it moves around. And so you really sort of have this, a different kind of feeling. There's a, a mismatch between your inner ear, which uses you know, gravity or weight to figure out what's up and down in your movement. That's no longer there. Your eye is like, I'm good, there's the top, there's the bottom, right? So there's this mismatch in your sensory mismatch. So it's something called space adaptation syndrome. So physiologically, you're not feeling really wonderful for the first couple of days. And then your body, as your body always does, is it reorients itself and it, you know, you get like, oh, I'm good. The inner ear says, you know, I'm not even worrying about it. Uh, I know the up and down and, you know, I'm figuring out different ways of doing it. In the fluid, you urinate a lot of what's now excess fluid out. So you start to come to an equilibrium. That's one part, right? And then you can push off and you, you know, you get to do these incredible things. Um, looking out the window, the first thing that I saw from space, absolute true story, was Chicago. It was where I grew up. <laughs> absolute true story. I launched from the mid-deck, on the mid-deck, and I was supposed to be on the night shift. Um, and so that meant that I was supposed to go to sleep like two to three hours after we got on orbit. Well, we know that wasn't gonna happen, but I had a lot of work to do because now you have to turn what was a rocket into a, you know, into a spaceship. So they were doing a lot of work reconfiguring and everything. And I'm a commander who, uh, Gibson, called me up to uh, the flight deck and said, look out the window. And I looked out the window and there was Chicago. True story passed over. So there was this like big grin for that little girl who just assumed that she would go into space. And the other part of what it felt like is for me this connectedness with the universe. Not, you know, not that I looked down at the earth and that was everything that I thought of. Well, some people say that you know so much of what the world is, it's everything that they thought of here, everything they belong to. I never thought of the earth as having lines between it or borders between countries. What was really great for me was that ability to connect with the rest of the universe. Here I was, I tried to make myself afraid. I thought here on this hatch that's about this wide was this environment that was not hospitable particularly to my life form. So I tried to make myself afraid. I even had thought that, you know, I, it would have been scary to be up there by myself and it would have been great to have other people there. But actually, I would have loved to have been up there by myself. Besides, people talk too much. But um, <laughs> when you're looking out the window, you know, you're trying. I didn't have much window time, but that's another story. But 
I could have gone, I would have loved to have been in there in a big glass bubble with my cat, right? And we could have gone anywhere because I felt like I was very connected with the universe. That was very much a part of it. You know, while we're sitting here, we're in space. Right. Right? We're in space right now. You know, we're the aliens for some other folks. True. Right? And, that, and we're made of star stuff. We're made of the same stuff as stars. We have every right to be in this universe. And for me, that was the most uh, incredible feeling. It's just a sense of calm, and here's where I want it to be. Would you go back? I'd go back in a heartbeat. Really? Yeah. I mean, the, the difference, why did I leave the astronaut program? Why is because when you're an astronaut, you don't get to determine all your own schedule and what you can do. And I thought that there were a lot of things that I could contribute that I had to contribute in other ways. Um, if we had been going to the moon, I would have sat in a corner and twiddled my thumbs. If we were going to Mars and I had the opportunity to go, I would have sat in a corner and twiddled my thumbs. But you have to decide. You know, sometimes you have to make these hard decisions as to what you want to do with your time. What am I doing now? I'm working on a project called 100 Year Starship. Yes, I'm not going to bring that, that up now. No, I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, go I, ahead. I, I, I want to hear about your project, um, the 100 Year Starship Program. <laughs> but I, I also love this question that a student asked, and it, it ties right into this. So they must have done, they, whoever this student is, you did a very good job. They said, as a scientist interested in space exploration, what should I work on to help us get out of the solar system in 100 years? Don't you love that? That's fantastic. Whoever you are, Stu. So, so. And the, what is, well, tell us about the project, too. So, 100 Year Starship is an initiative, an independent, non governmental initiative that was seed funded uh, through a competitive grant by DARPA to ensure that we have the capabilities for human travel beyond our solar system to another star within 100 years. There's no launch date, but it's rather about making sure that capabilities exist. So what that sort of feeds into the question, what should you do? What are the capabilities? We believe that it's a full range of capabilities because when people think of space exploration, they usually think of the rocket engine, right, mm -hmm. and propulsion. But that's just part of it. There's the materials that you need. There's you having humans involved. There's issues around life sciences and microbiome. Let me tell you what um, it is to go to another star system. Why isn't it just Mars? Why are we looking at uh, going outside of our solar system? Is because of the incredible leaps of knowledge, technology, design, and innovation you have to do in order to get there. It's something we don't know how to do right now. And so you can use this as a platform to really push things. Okay. Um, our closest neighboring star is uh, the Alpha Centauri system. It's 4.2 light years away. That's the distance that light travels in 4.2 years. It's over 25 trillion miles away. Let's put this in some perspective. Light travels from the sun to the earth in eight minutes. So that's 93 million miles, okay, in eight minutes. So light's traveling at over 186,000 miles per second. It takes light four years to, 4.2 years to get from our sun to Alpha Centauri. 
So the distances are great. One person said, if you put three grains of sand in a vast cathedral, that cathedral is more filled with sand than spaces with stars. So I just want to give you a visceral feeling for what you're doing. So um, the, one of the fastest vehicles we had, Voyager, you heard about the, the probe Voyager? Voyager was launched when I was a kid. Um, it's been traveling at over 35,000 miles per hour since 1977. And it just left our solar system. Right? To get to Alpha Centauri would take almost 70,000 years. And always remind us that we weren't doing good cave painting back then. Right? <laughs> we would take, we, 70,000 years ago, we weren't good at that. Right. So we have to go much faster. Right? In order to go faster, you have to have a different energy system. There's not enough chemical propellant in the entire solar system to get a big vehicle going some percent of light speed. So you'd have to um, use uh, fission, uh, fusion, antimatter. Fission is, you know, when you split atoms apart. Fusion, what powers the sun when you put them together. Uh, antimatter in order to be able to generate the kind of energy you need. So let's say you do that and you're able to get a tenth of light speed. It's still going to take you 50 years or more to get to Alpha Centauri. So it means that you're going to have to have materials that can last that long, that are radiation tolerant and other things. You're going to have to be able to create... Um, self-sustaining agricultural systems, right? Because once you get to go in that fashion, you're not going to slow down for groceries. You just, you know, you have to keep right. going. So, so all of a sudden, we're having to understand a lot more about the microbiome in the soil because we got to carry it with us. Whatever you're going to do, you have to carry it with you. If you're going that fast, well, let's do this. The shuttle once <coughs> um, had a paint chip that was embedded in the window and it, and it you know, made a dent in the window of the shuttle. And we were going 17,000 miles per hour. Now imagine how fast you're going per second and what that paint chip would do. So you're gonna really have to have some very sophisticated systems and different kinds of things that would happen and navigation techniques. Because if you're going that fast, if you get your direction just a little bit off, you're gonna miss everything, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have much better navigation, much better communications. While we're sitting here, our gut is filled with microbes. You know, you got little microbes all over you, all inside you and stuff like that. And they're your friends, right? They're helping you digest. Don't look so bad. It's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound good because everybody's telling you, get rid of those germs. No, they, they're your buddies. But they're actually helping you digest your food and things. And they get refreshed all the time while we're here. But if you're in a closed system, we have to figure out and understand what that is. You have to take your health care with you, your health care infrastructure with you, because diseases, things are going to progress. So everything you can think of is needed. But even more so, the commitment to be able to do something for a long period of time. How do you invest in something where you don't have the regular ROIC, right? Return mm -hmm. in capital investment. But we have to do that because it's going to be take that kind of a commitment over a long period of time. There's the issue of human behavior. Okay, I got I to gotta drink some on this before I tell you this one. <laughs> so... I can see us getting the vehicle and all of that done, right? 
we're all set, ready to go. We launched, you got me in suspended animation because I'm going to go, right? <laughs> and so I made it 100 years, and you put me on the vehicle, and I'm ready. And about 10 years out, I get to feeling jazzy. And I say, you know, um, I, I'm just not doing that. <laughs> well, you were in charge when we left, but how are you going to make me? Mm-hmm. Right? That whole behavior, y'all keep doing this, and I'm going to open the hatch. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing, because it's human behavior. How do we get along with each other? What's mm -hmm. the governance system? And the reason why that's important <laughs> is because I can talk to you about trying to go to another solar system, but if I came up here and talk, tried to say, here's how we're going to get to world peace, you all wouldn't even listen to me for five minutes, right? <laughs> but we can talk about how could we come together to figure out how to get teams to work together. It becomes an important platform for thinking about and understanding things that happen into the future. Um, Will and Errol Durant said the future never just happened, it was created. And so when you go back to ask that question about what do we do with the science literacy, what do we do with the reading literacy, what do we do with the numeracy that we have, what do we do with what we learn about history and sociology and all of those issues, we create the future. And the more we know, the more perspectives we have to bring to bear, the better it is. That's the reason why it's so critically important that we have people from all walks of life, from different backgrounds, who are working on these problems. I had this one final question for you, and also one of the students' question. Uh, the students' question was, you're my inspiration, but who was your inspiration? And I, I also found in my research this, this wonderful quote that, um, that you've said before that really resonated with me, and, and that is, the best way to make dreams come true is to wake up. <laughs> and so, in echoing this student, my question, final question for you is, who and what or what fuels your dreams for the future, and what or who inspires you? Um, I believe that we get our inspiration from life, right? You find people that are really incredible and you want to pay attention to, and they don't have to look just like you or be like you. You find bits and pieces from different people. I was really fortunate, as I said, to have chosen my parents well. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, that, that push to think through things really came from Working with him, my mother, my mother was a school teacher in the Chicago public schools for 25 years. The foundation that I started was called the Dorothy Jemison Foundation for Excellence. It's named after her. She said everyone can uh, be excellent. Everyone can be number one. But everyone can be excellent. And it's not just about being number one, because you could be number one in stuff and not have pushed yourself to your full level of excellence. And so I get a lot of, in, a lot of inspiration for thinking that through. What can I do? How, how well could I do something? That quote is from Paul Valerie, which is, you know, the best way to make a dream come true is to wake up. Because we're always talking about if you dream it, you can be a no. Let's, let's, let's be real. I'm just, I'm being real with you now. 
right? <laughs> you know, you can make things happen if you can see it, you can visualize, but you have to have a path to get to it. You have to have a stick to itiveness. You have to deal with failures and success. You have to recruit people to work with you on things. You have to sometimes say, I'm going to lead us along for a while and I'm going to come back to it later. It's, it's a much more intense process than that. So many times we've sort of tried to, to get things down to these catchphrases. Life is more complex than that. It's wonderful, right? There's so many things you can do. It's within your control, right? You have a choice as to what to do with your time. That's the thing I always have to remember. You know, you know when you get sad, go ahead and mope. Go on and sit in the corner. You know, feel bad. And then laugh at yourself because you know it was something crazy, right? <laughs> there's going to be a funny part on it. Even if it wasn't, even if it was something tragic, there's something, there's, you know, there are people that you've known that are fun, that they're inspiring, that there are pieces there. And so we have choices. You can choose to sort of sit there with whatever you're miserable about. You can choose to sit there with whatever hurdles people put in front of you. You'll find, I think, um, when Kimberly and I were talking, we were talking about how women are usually asked to talk about the hurdles that they didn't get through, you know, the imposter syndrome, this kind of stuff, and other kind of things. I don't feel like, you know, it's important to talk about it. It's important to understand that these hurdles exist. Yet at the same time, if you sit there with them, that's exactly what you're gonna be doing is sitting there with them. You don't have to go through them. Sometimes you can just go around them. Sometimes you say, well, you know what? I'm gonna let you, let you have that. I'm gonna do something different in a different way. And, and that's really important. And that's true for anyone, right? Is to think through what it is you wanna do, who you intend to be, and understand that you have choices of what to do with your time. And that's what inspires me, is knowing that I have time and I get choices. Well, we've, we've come to the end of our program. And in the words of another innovator, uh, the great Octavia Butler, I think that says it all, and so be it, so it is. <laughs> Please um, give a round of applause to Dr. Jemison. So I'm Kimberly Bryant, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. 
From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week.